Hello, my name is Haley McGuinness, and welcome to the IMD podcast. As part of the international alumni event, whose theme was the future of the planet, exploring the role of leadership in meeting global challenges, we were curious to hear from alumni about their careers and, more specifically, the catalysts which spark change in their professional journeys. So we invited five alumni from various industries and backgrounds on stage to discuss and reflect the decisions they made during their careers. The panel session was moderated by IMD alumna Suba Umatova. I really hope you enjoy listening to their conversation and find something relatable in your own career. Let's get into it. Everybody knows um, heroin, right? It's very addictive. Methamphetamine is more addictive. You know, there's, there's one active ingredient which is more addictive than all those drugs. It's called money. <laughs> you inject a dose of money to someone, you get the biggest addict ever. And uh, if you have executives that have those big fat paychecks and they think about what's my annual objectives and what's my bonus, this is very well aligned, by the way, with the quarterly or annual objectives that you have in public companies. How do you reconcile this with the necessary long-term vision that you have to take if you want to do good in the long term? Even though, by the way, in the life science industry, we're used to long cycles, long product cycles, long lead times, long development cycles. Even then, you know, we still have to deal with the schizophrenia of you know, having the quality numbers and, and communication to deliver. But the, the bonuses of the executives are fully aligned with those short-term goals. And inevitably, with this addiction that I was describing before, sorry for the you know, crash course in pharmacology, what you get is, is a misalignment of you know, the incentives and the necessary, I would say, package that would have to be in place if you wanted to foster a different attitude in executives. That's a very interesting point because we do hear often people talk, I would love to change, but my salary is too good. You know, what is the yeah. alternative? And the message is also in nonprofits or places you feel like you could make a difference that the salaries are not that good. So that's kind of the uh, but, but dilemma. That, that was Arturo's point earlier. I mean, I took a, a massive hit on my personal income when I left the big industry. Yeah. But it took me, and this is where everybody has a tipping point, it took me years to figure that out. So maybe I'm less clever than the average, mm-hmm. but it took me years of you know, trade-offs, yeah. your compromise. And I thought I was going to work with a partner that I understood very well, know how to do, and I will just change them and make them more efficient and actually you know, you know, <laughs> drug addict them a little bit on money and things like that. What was very interesting for me is that my first summer was absolute hell. Because there's such a huge gap between the non-for-profit sector Mm. and the for-profit sector. And sorry to say to the speakers that we had today, there are still a lot of misunderstandings out there on how government people work, Mm. on how the non-for-profit sector worked, and how the for-profit. And it's actually that osmosis that Nadine was talking about that needs to happen. But you have to be across border. You have to live and be with these various organizations so that you better understand how this works. Building on this and to build a more sustainable planet, we need to all work together and the government plays a key role. And that's where a question comes in from the audience for Jan. How successful is your work despite government not being involved in it? Um, yeah, so, so um, that's hard to measure, obviously. Um, 
we believe that, that what we do is we try to raise awareness in big corporates. We, we, we uh, improve them on their focus, even if the, if the results are not good. Uh, we help them deal with issues, activate programs. Um, but sometimes, you know, uh, having, a, having an absence of the right uh, governmental um, actions in place uh, prohibits a good result. I mean, that, that's w without saying. Um, it depends a bit on the industry, so, uh, but uh, yeah, in general, I think there's m more we can do. I do not believe we should wait for governance, governments to take their role. I think they should do much mm -hmm. better, but I do believe there's a lot companies can do. Also, we describe it in, in the book that uh, Jean-Francois mentioned yesterday. We talk about vectoring. So vectoring <coughs> being a combination of speed and direction. Direction being the focus of what topics you want to talk about. Speed is about the execution. Uh, I think there's a lot companies can do in absence of those uh, governmental rules. What I would like to come back to is that's probably, um, I mean, it's a very interesting and inspiring transition that all of you have been on and you're continuing to do. My question is really coming back to the presentation of uh, Susan and Nadine. You know, you know that something needs to change, but how do you actually overcome your personal barrier and actually change it? And I think that's not the most easiest thing to do, but how did you feel about that, Marie-Laure? Just at one point you realize, I mean, for me it was very much after a decade in the company, I thought that went by so fast and, and life goes by so fast and what side do I want to be on? What kind of future do I want to contribute to underwriting? And for me it was very clear after that decade is do I want to spend another decade with this company? And if I do want to spend another decade with this company, what do I want to be doing? Um, and I think that was for me really the absolutely point, yeah. the tipping point. But mm -hmm. then really trying to figure out if that was the right company to be in. And then you need to ensure that you're aligned with values and that you will have sufficient support, mm -hmm. not just from the top, but also from the sides, <laughs> um, to be able to get things done. Because if every single person, well, first and foremost, without the top down, like you said, you said you know, the CEO had this moment, right? And I think our partners are very much committed as well. And if there wasn't that, then there would be, it would be impossible to go you know, talk to the levels underneath of senior managers that are focused on their territories, on their bottom line, that are being incentivized mm -hmm. for that. Um, and having that top-down kind of, OK, this person has been put in place by the partners to do this job, um, you're empowered. But then there is talking to the people around you. Um, and we had this discussion as well with, um, with some of your colleagues from IMD on the, the, the need to, um, to influence. Right. And at the beginning, I spent a lot of time with people at the beginning of my of my job, people that were like, oh, it's amazing what you're doing and uh, we want to contribute and we want to help. And then one day I meet someone that tells me, but are you talking to the people that don't agree with you? <laughs> That's the key. Have you mapped out your influential people in the company? Not the ones that agree, the ones that disagree, the ones that are all like, no, this is yes, this doesn't actually matter, or this is business, you know, go and deal with your nice, pretty thing somewhere else. And, um, and so that was really powerful. That was a very, very helpful uh, piece of advice because I mapped out my influential non-believers. 
I think dialogue seems to be the key here. But I think as, a, as an NGO leader myself, I can say, you know, when, when some people come to us, they, they just come sort of at the end of their career and they feel like, you know, I would like to give back. But that's not the people we need, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the, in the sense, you know, if they want to really contribute, of course, but we also, we mean business as well. It's, it's a very professional industry and that's why we need that um, dialogue across, uh, across the sector. And um, Scott, so how do you actually overcame your blockages? Well, I spent my life talking to him. Gerard's story resonates very strongly with me about the CEO because I've worked a lot. I mean, we work with some pretty big companies, um, Nestle, Mars, etc. And if you don't get that buy-in from the top, the, the folk that are really, maybe in, in the lower parts of the company, that really, it really resonates with them, they're very passionate about it, these are the people that get frustrated and, and, and get hurt so. along the journey. Mm -hmm. So I've spent a lot of my time talking to chairman and CEOs and you know, director of operations and all these guys uh, who have these major roles to play in flipping the decision. And often I've come to them in a very stressful time because they're getting beaten up by an NGO and, and they feel very aggrieved about this. And, um, and they're very focused on hating the NGO. Um, and the issue that up for discussion gets all clouded away because the way the NGO is shaming them in public and, um, and they hate this. And so I've, I've done a lot of standing between NGOs and companies and trying to, it was, it was classic, the, um, many of you will know about the Nestle case in 2010 when Greenpeace made that wonderful orangutan finger video. And, um, and that was not well received at Nestle. And, um, and so my role really, I got in there because I knew the people at Greenpeace and a few people at Nestle and suddenly I was in talking to these guys and, and you know, both parties wanted to have no deforestation in the Nestle products. But one was speaking Nestleese and the other was speaking Greenpeaceese. They're both speaking English, mm -hmm. but two different languages. Mm -hmm. And trying to help them navigate through that journey was really important. And, and find a common ground. Find something to... that, yeah, I mean, the common ground was mm -hmm. none of us want to be linked to deforestation. Mm -hmm. um, well, how are we going to go about that? And what I've learned, what I've learned, and you know, really over the last 20 years of standing in this interesting place, um, is if, if we've really got to help people connect to what they fundamentally believe, you've got to get right to the essence of their, I would even say their, go beyond, purpose is the word at the moment, I, I used to call it values, but it's really what do they feel in their soul? What is deep inside them? And get them to act from that place. And that's not easy, uh, because there's a lot of reasons why people won't go there. Sometimes, you know, I, I often talk about here, and you know, here's share price and all this sort of stuff, and here's where you really live. And often there's a steel reinforced slump of, of concrete right here. <laughs> and, and you know, <laughs> trying to get through that thing is pretty difficult. True, but it's true. a journey of 50 centimetres, yeah. but it's the hardest one. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that you know, the, 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 when it works is when I turn up in the room and I bring my soul into the room, who I am. And you Scott as human. Uh, yeah, and look, this is what I believe, and you can yell at me and you can scream at me, because they often do. They think I'm there because I'm Greenpeace or something like that. I'm just the poor guy who, they can't yell at Greenpeace, so they yell at me. <laughs> and and so, so you've got to be able to cope with that, and you've got to be able to live with that. And if I say, oh, you can't say that to me, and I get upset, then we go nowhere. But if, if I, I, I it's, it's, it's a funny thing, because people don't really like talking about souls. There's an Australian cartoonist and philosopher called Michael Lunig, and he talks about ducks. And he's drawn this wonderful picture of a man praying to a duck, and it's his, his way of depicting a man trying to get close to his soul. So I often talk about ducks. 
So I say, look, if you put your duck in the room, <laughs> then, then the other person opposite you will be more compelled to, put, to bring their duck out. I call it duck whispering. <laughs> you know, Excellent. Calling out the duck. And, and what I found is when it, when it works, profound and dramatic changes can happen. Like you know, Gerard's told about his cement company boss. Profound and dramatic changes. And NGOs go, how'd you get that to happen? Yeah. Well, would you just invite... Talk to each other. Would you just invite them to yeah. be who they are? Mm -hmm. And put aside worrying about share price. Don't worry about the shame that you're feeling at the moment. Nestle was a great example. When, when we drafted up their no deforestation policy, discussed it with Greenpeace, it was announced on May 17th, 2010. May 20th, I was in, went to meet them again to start, okay, how are we going to implement this now? And the lady at the desk, the front desk of Nestle, massive building, I walked in there and she said, you know, g'day, who's your name? She didn't say that, it was bonjour and all that sort of stuff, but g'day was the equivalent. Scott Poynton, and where are you from? I said, oh, TFT. I said, oh, what's that? I said, oh, it's the Forest Trust. And she said, oh, the Forest Trust. Thank God you're here. I'm like, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she said, yeah, the announcement went sure. internally. And you know what? We're so happy to be working with you yeah. because we don't want to kill orangutans. That's not who we are. And I'm like, wow, that's from the receptionist at the front desk. And did they ring up and tell you I was coming to tell you to say that? No. <laughs> and as I went through the building, this is the common theme. Yeah. You know, we're so glad that we've got through this. Now we're going to implement it and we get on with it. And, and really to finish up is to say that whenever we've reached that essence of the person who you're sitting opposite, and best if it's the CEO or the chair who's got that ability to make the big decision, but it can come from lower in the organisations and find its way up. It's tougher, that role, that, that route, but it can. Then we get change. And when I've got that, and when we've managed to bring that into the room, we get massive change. But when I haven't been able to help that come, for whatever reason, mm. we don't get the change that we want to see. So really, you know, the, the, I call it the secret, sacred art of duck whispering. But that's really the question that a lot of people keep asking, you know, I would love to implement this, but I can't really be myself at work. Mm. And that's probably where the question of purpose comes in. Mm. And for you, Pierre, um, now you've gone through this journey, do you ever regret it? It is also challenging to be, you know, it's a personal sacrifice to leave a very well-paying job and, and just going on this journey on your own. Have you ever felt lonely? How, how did you go about it? There are several questions in your question. Felt lonely, the answer is yes. That's a short one. And, and, and um, but actually, going back to your previous question, what, what was the driver, I think, is, is the key, because it's how you metabolize this and, and what kind of insights you draw from this. I mean, it's, I mean, in my case, it's always been coming from a forensic analysis. It's a post-mortem analysis that told me, oh, that's what happened. Uh, on the spot, you, you, I mean, one tends to, to react. Uh, according to the, um, the alchemy of the reaction and the, of the people around the table, I think, as, as, as Scott was, was, was describing. Um, originally, for me, was, it was the search for efficiency. I was frustrated f for not having an impact and essentially realizing that I was spending, maybe because I, had to, I was too full of myself, um, spending 80% of my intellectual energy to feed the beast for the corporate entropy was just enough. Uh, and I needed to be closer to the action and to make it a, um, a, a greater impact or a more meaningful impact. It's only over time that it is, what kind of meaning does that meaningful impact has to have? And this is where 
uh, it's more a journey, if you will. Um, and, uh, and, and along the way, that's right, you realize that what is the kind of impact you want to have. Um, and, and you also realize, how do I build a toolbox to have this impact? It's one thing to be uh, you know, willing to do something, but if you're on a child crusade, you, every, everybody knows it ends up in slavery, right? This is history, but that's pretty much the same thing for, for people who, are, who become sort of uh, in chains and, and, and feeling miserable in their jobs. And some don't have the, um, the, the will or the, or the opportunity to jump ship and, and to do something else. So to your question on, on, on influence, um, and especially in my industry, which is an industry where the first currency is data. Before money, it's data. It's data about science. First, you know, when the mice and rats are your best friends, and you move into humans, long cycles, and then you talk money along the way. But mm -hmm. it's, it's really a data-driven industry with long, you know, very long cycle. And and it's 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 difficult to you know move people from this addiction to data. So it's all about you know, using indirect influence. You know, the, the, the practice of viral change. Uh, when you are sitting at the board of, uh, and you're the only independent non-exec director, and everybody else is representing a fund that has a time horizon with an exit objective, or has a time horizon with an IPO objective. And in the end, you're, you're thinking, well, hang on. We've got, and this is where I believe it's the connection with the value of the assets. You've got assets with a long-term residual value, and you want to do good and you want to create this backbone that will carry the company forward. How am I navigating the interaction with these people so they don't you know, look at me like the guy who's been having something illegal for breakfast uh, every time he gets into the boardroom, and you have some influence, and you in instillate different thinking in these people so they balance their reasoning. How do you in use the right balance is, is the key. So I use a lot of indirect influence, a lot of metaphor, a lot of the viral change techniques, yeah. which is Speaking to others, it's like you know playing pool. You know, don't hit the ball straight. Go around, then and make in them the bucket. realize themselves. Yeah, and and and, and, and and besides, it's also very much an immunological model. You never get a reaction, a proper immune response with the first injection. You need booster doses. So keep boosting. <laughs> The data that needs to be advertised, though, is not just what we're doing well. Because <laughs> if you look at impact, for example, in finance, so we're also data driven. And sorry, I'm jumping in. I know we have oh, questions, no, but, no, no but I think like, we're always talk. It's very easy to talk about what you do well. It's very easy to show that this or this product is contributing to SDG 6 or 8 or whatever. It's much harder to be honest about the carbon intensity of your we portfolios, fail. about yeah. the price issues that are True. you know restricting access to medicine in the you know in certain markets, but then a very profitable company that you have in a portfolio that is then feeding a pension fund that is then feeding a very real person at their retirement, right? So we need, and, and I think the European Union is doing a huge role there, coming back to the importance of regulation um, on their European Action Plan on Financing Sustainable Growth where they're really not just trying to redirect capital flows, but trying to mainstream ESG risks into all investment portfolios and then have that disclosure piece. And it makes a lot of us uncomfortable because that's the duck, right? So <laughs> right? you have to show the, these things. But then clients will be able to invest in a way where they at least know, yeah. right? And we, if we do not internalize those externalities, if we do not align those incentives, we will not solve the systemic issue. We will have products that look great. We will buy ocean plastic stuff, but, but the mainstream will not get better.